following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Lord, please fill us, all of us, today with your Spirit to understand your Word, to understand you, and to be reminded of the great truths that we have sung about this morning that you, Jesus, are the Savior of this world. You are the Lord of all, the King of all. And you, in great humility and great love, having great mercy on us, came to earth to pay the penalty uh, for sins, for crimes, for, for the rebellion that we committed against you. And so as we just work through your word this morning, remind us of these things. It is always good to be reminded of these most basic concepts of the gospel. I pray that they will be clear from your word today. May my words be clear as well. Please guide my heart and my lips as I preach in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes in life, uh, very subtle things, words, events, uh, choices you make can sometimes have a great deal more significance than what you may at first realize. I had a little mini taste of this in a very non-important kind of way this week uh, when we were watching Wheel of Fortune. It was uh, Monday, I know, Monday or Tuesday night, we had uh, finished eating dinner, and then we uh, sat down to watch the evening news. And we don't watch the evening news every night, but when we do, it is very tempting for us to then watch Wheel of Fortune, just because who doesn't like Wheel of Fortune, right? It's like the, it's just, I don't know, what will it be like when Pat and Vanna are gone? Have you ever thought about that? I don't know if I'll even be able to watch the show anymore, but so it came on, Pat and Vanna walk out, and uh, Pat walks over to the wheel, and they always start with the toss-up, right? So you get that first glimpse of the three contestants. And I looked at the third guy, the guy farthest away from Pat, and the first thought, no lie, that came to my mind was, this guy looks like a free will Baptist pastor. Now, that's a weird thought unless you know my background a little bit. Uh, I don't normally just go around pegging people's denominational choices, but... I grew up going to a Christian school in North Carolina that was run by a church, a Free Will Baptist church, okay? So this Free Will Baptist church, they had a Christian school, and so most of my friends went to this church. Uh, I myself attended it for a number of years once I was able to drive, because that's where my friends were, and I wanted to be with them. So I grew up in this particular culture of, of North Carolina Free Will Baptist, whatever that is. Okay, so that's what I grew up in. When I saw this guy, his hair and his suit, and just, I don't know, it was just something about him It was weird. The first thing I thought was, this guy looks like a Free Will Baptist pastor. So they do the toss-up round, and uh, he doesn't win. The guy on the far end uh, closest to Pat wins, and so Pat starts with him and introducing him. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I live here. I do this, and here's my little funny thing about myself. And then the lady who is in the middle goes next, and then they get to this guy, and his name is Josh, and he is from uh, Gastonia, North Carolina, and he is an assistant pastor at a Free Will Baptist church. <laughs> and I'm sitting there listening to this, and I'm like, no way. Like, I just called that in advance just from looking at him. And I tell Jamie, I'm like, this is the weirdest thing. Like, I just, just when I saw him, I thought he looks like a, a Free Will Baptist pastor. And I'm sitting there the rest of like, the next 15 minutes just thinking about this. Like, how could I have possibly done that? And he had mentioned the name of their church. It was Cramerton Free Will Baptist Church. And so I'm like, I got to look this guy up. So I go and look him up. And I don't recognize him. I don't know this guy at all. But I go and look him up. And lo and behold, I went to high school with this kid. (laughs) 
He was a year ahead of me in high school, but he's lost some hair and gained some weight. I could relate, okay? He, it's, it's been nearly 20 years since I've seen him. Uh, his name was Josh Bear. Uh, his family attended the church uh, there. His whole family went to the school. I knew this kid. He didn't look the same at all, but apparently, just that quick glance I got at the beginning, there was something about him that triggered in the back of my mind, some memory, some connection. It was very subtle, but I knew somehow I made this connection that he was a free will Baptist something, and sure enough, I was right. So that's a, a really silly, inconsequential example. It just shows how something very subtle can end up having more significance than what you may at first realize. And that is why I have come back here to these final eight words of Mark chapter 6, verse 6, because at first glance, they don't really seem that significant, right? I mean, it says, and he went about among the villages teaching. But you see what Mark is doing here in a very, I mean, all caps, very subtle way, in a very uh, inauspicious way, in a very understated way, is he is indicating a major shift that is about to occur here in this story. And you might be thinking, okay, well, well exactly how major is it since you're making a big deal out of it? I mean, what what exactly is, is the big deal here that's about to change? Well, to put it bluntly, Mark chapter 6, verse 7 is the beginning of Mark's conclusion. Now, if Mark is maybe guilty of understating things when he makes the comment that Jesus is now going to go about the village's teaching, I might be overstating a little bit to say it that way but I would only be overstating it just a little because beginning in chapter 6, verse 7, we are going to start walking down a straight line to the cross. I mean, this is, this is the home stretch. Granted, it's a long home stretch, but this is, this is the home stretch. And so as I have done many times before as we've begun new sections of the text, I'd like to use our time together this morning to prepare us for that journey. I did this kind of last week in a way, just reminding us of where we have been up to this point uh, as we ended that last section that we've been working in for the last few months, uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 1 to 6, verse 6. And I want to use this morning to introduce this last section that we're going to be in until Mark is done, okay? This is it. So you can think, we're almost done with Mark here in chapter 6. We're almost done with Mark. It's the biggest section, it's the longest section, and it really is the final section of Mark's gospel. And so we're just going to take today and do that 10,000-foot flyover that we sometimes do as we're coming into new sections so that we can get an understanding of where we're headed with this thing. Because I'm just a big believer that that's really helpful for us as students of the Scriptures to just have a, some sense of where we're going in general. And that's what I want to do here. I want to I look at what Mark is doing, where we're going to head, and and what this next section is going to be all about. And to do that, I want to begin by simply showing you the main theme. If we can summarize this section, the main theme here of this final section. And so to do that, I want to remind you of some things we looked at last Sunday. Last Sunday, as I was kind of doing that smorgasbord approach, and as I was thinking about some of the things that have been on my mind here in Mark, I was reflecting on the fact that I appreciate how well organized Mark is. Remember that? I was talking about the pattern that you see in Mark, how he begins with that prologue, and then he goes into section one, which is Mark 114 to 335. And in that section, Mark is presenting Jesus as, can anyone remember? Son of God. The one person who started to go and then stop. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Son of God. That was what you were trying to say. 
And you just think back, if you were here with us in that section, think about all the things that Mark showed us about what Jesus's message was, what his plan was, how, what his heart was. You think about even some of the stories that are unfolded for us in that section as, as the friends come and they drop the paralytic man through the roof and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees respond by saying, well, hey, listen, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus therefore heals to prove that he is, in fact, God. That whole section is being laid out in such a way to highlight the fact that Jesus is more than just a man, that he is unlike any other man that you have ever met, that you have ever encountered, that he is, in fact, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Son of God. And how did that section end? It ended with rejection. As the people who see all of this, who hear all of this, reject him, the, the religious leaders of his day say he's possessed by Beelzebub. And he's, he's not God's son. He's not God's agent. He's actually the agent of Satan. That's how he's able to do these things, not by his own divine power. His family thinks he's crazy. You've got this major presentation of Jesus here by Mark as being the son of God, capped off at the end with rejection. Then we went into section number two here, where Jesus is being presented as, thank you, king. I always hate doing that, but I have to do it. Jesus is king. And so in Mark chapter four, verse one, he begins with a series of parables where he's talking about the kingdom. He explains what the kingdom's going to be like, how it's going to unfold. And then we see some stories where Jesus is presented as king in certain scenarios. He's king over chaos, king over evil, king over death. Jesus is not like any other man. He is the king of all things, and there is no realm, no force that can stand against him or his kingdom. We got to the end of that section, and again, we see what? A rejection. This time in Nazareth, what we looked at last week, as the people of his own hometown go, isn't this uh, Mary's son? Isn't this the tecton, the carpenter, the workman? Just a blue-collar guy from a, black, uh, a backwater town in a, in a inconsequential province. He's in an occupied nation. This guy's nobody. Where does he get this wisdom? Where does he get these deeds? He's, we know him. They're writing him off with all of those questions. They, they've seen all that he has done. They've heard about his wondrous deeds, and yet they reject him as king. And so now we come into this third section, and here in this third section, Jesus is now going to be presented again as a particular title. This time it's not the Son of God. This time it's not the King. This time he's going to be presented very simply as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And this will take us from chapter 6, verse 7, all the way to the end of chapter 15. Okay, this, this huge section that is designed, that is laid out to present Jesus as the Christ. And if you, I'm just going to walk us quickly through that section in really high level, just so you know what's going to come. But here in that section, Mark is, is going to divide up this one big section into three subsections. Okay, three subsections in this one big section. The first subsection I'm calling, based on someone else calling it this, just for being honest, the expansion of Jesus's ministry beyond Galilee. Because if you think back to what we've seen up to this point, everything that's occurred has been in Galilee. In fact, probably 90% of it's been in Capernaum. Once he, he traveled across the sea, went over here into some stuff, once he went over to, to Nazareth, but the majority of his, of his ministry up to this point in Mark has been in a very, very small area. And now beginning in chapter 6, verse 7, you're going to really notice that Jesus's world begins to expand. 
His ministry is going to go beyond uh, just Galilee here in chapter 6, verse 7 to chapter 8, verse 21. And there's going to be a number of things we'll see in that first subsection. One, you'll see a concern on Jesus's part for a wider proclamation of his message of repentance and belief. I mean, look at chapter 6, verse 7, if you will. The very first thing in this new section is that he's going to send out the 12. Send them out two by two to go preach. Preach what? Repentance and belief. They're going to go, they're going to preach, they're going to cast out demons, they're going to heal the sick. You've got this idea that the message needs to expand faster and broader than what Jesus has currently done up to this point. And sandwiched here in the middle of sending out the 12, we'll see our next intercalation here in the next story, sandwiched there in the middle is the story of John the Baptist's death. He's, he's going to be killed here in the middle of the story. It's the first indication in this section that trouble comes to those who proclaim God's word. Things aren't always rosy. And this is going to be significant for Jesus. This is going to be significant for his disciples, and it will certainly be significant for us as well. You see, again, Jesus' wider concern now growing as he goes up into Gentile territory in chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. Jesus is going to do something there that makes no sense to his, his contemporaries. He, a Jewish teacher, goes to the Gentiles. He goes up to the area of Tyre and Sidon, and there he interacts with a woman who he says has greater faith than everyone in, in Israel. And so in doing that, you see that God hasn't just come to Israel, though clearly that's his focus. No one's denying that here in Mark. But the good news of Jesus is seen even in that act as being for all. And so we'll see that here in this first subsection, this wider concern of Jesus for the proclamation of his message to everyone. Number two, you'll see continued healing, continued signs. That will be throughout. He's going to feed the 5,000. He's going to walk on water. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to open the ears of the deaf. He's going to heal the 4,000. All these stories that you've known since childhood, right? The flannel graph effect where you, you know them, but you don't know how they fit together. Those all occur during the section. Number three, you'll see the teaching that true righteousness with God isn't earned through outward means. It's earned through inward faith. Something we've seen already in Mark's gospel, but it's going to change. It's going to become even more significant now in this last section. You're going to see the faith of the people who are healed kind of throughout. You're going to see uh, this big controversy that's going to erupt between Jesus and the Pharisees, moms, plug the ears of your kids, about the importance of washing your hands, okay? Because the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples not eating with washed hands, and they're like, hey, hey, they're defiling themselves. And Jesus says, listen, no one is made unclean by eating with unwashed hands. That's what you got to plug your kids' ears for right there, because they'll be like, Mom, see, Jesus didn't wash his hands. I don't have to wash mine either. And you'll be like, don't listen to Jesus. You can't say that. That's going to be your problem right there. Can't say that one, right? Jesus is like, no, listen, you're not defiled by eating with unwashed hands. Whatever goes in that way just comes out of the other. What defiles a man is what comes out of the heart, this idea that the inner matters more something that would not have, have been common in his day in many respects because of how people had come to view the law. But Jesus is going to make it very, very clear. You see it as he praises the Syrophoenician woman's faith. You see it in his rebuke of the Pharisees when they want to see signs. Jesus is coming in this whole subsection one here. He's coming proclaiming this significance of an inner faith against an outward act, outward ritual, and outward presentation of religiosity. So that, that's section one of this first or this last section. Subsection one is this uh, ministry, larger ministry around Israel. Subsection two 
recalling on the way to Jerusalem. So beginning in chapter 8, verse 22, all the way through the end of chapter 10, Jesus will be taking steps. Each story, each scene will take us one step closer to Jerusalem. He's on the move now. And as he's on the move, again, you see a number of things will be highlighted in this second subsection. One, continued healings. This is just what Jesus does, right? So he's going to heal the blind. He's going to do other stuff. We'll see a lot of that. Two, continued emphasis on the need for faith. This is that story. I'm, every time I read it in Mark 9, the story of the man who comes to Jesus. Remember, his, his son has a demon. It's causing him to have uh, seizures and fits and he comes and he begs Jesus to cast the demon out of his son. And Jesus emphasizes to him the need for faith, and the man says those words that I feel like are the anthem of my heart, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You know those words? Because you feel like so many times in the Christian life and you're struggling with something, you're like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, like, this guy nails it. And when we get to that, I, I feel like that's just going to be a, a, a huge huge message for us just to think through what that means. You're going to see this continued emphasis on the need for faith. Three, you're going to see this moment. It's a pivotal moment here in the middle of the subsection where, where Jesus turns to the disciples and says, who do people say that I am? He wants to see if the disciples actually get what it is Mark is trying to show us. And of course, we know that they do because Peter responds, you are the Christ. You are the son. He, he gets it. You're, you're this person. Other people say this. Other people say that. But we know that you are the Christ. And this will be a turning point in this final section here. Number four, you're going to see three predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection. At certain intervals, Jesus is going to stop and he's going to turn to the disciples and say, listen, I'm about to die. I'm going to die at the hands of our people, and I'm going to rise again. You see it in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. These three predictions will be critical in that section. And then finally, you see very specific teaching to the disciples about who he is and what it's going to mean to follow him, because he's on his way to Jerusalem, and the time is getting shorter and shorter. So this is where Jesus is going to say to them, listen, you want to be my disciple? That's great deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And we've heard those words so much, they have no meaning to us, but it would be as if he said, listen, completely forget about yourself and anything you want to do ever again, put a noose around your neck and come follow me. Sit in your, in your electric chair and follow me. Drink the cup of cyanide and follow me. He's telling them you're going to die. He's not making discipleship very attractive in that moment. Pick up your cross. Get ready, because if you're going to follow me, it's going to require your life. He, these are words he says there in chapter 8. We're going to see him in his glory, the transfiguration, chapter 9. We're going to get to see James and John come and ask to sit on either side of the throne. And he says, listen, listen, he who would be the greatest in the kingdom has to be the what? the servant, the least of all. And he has those great words there in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, listen, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is, this is what it's going to mean to follow Jesus. And that's going to lead us up then to the final subsection here, Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. If you think about Mark's gospel, it's 16 chapters long. You've got 10 chapters that are given to the first 
33 years of his life. Then you have five chapters given to one week. 33 years in 10 chapters, one week in five. And so in this final week, we're going to see teaching in detail we have not seen up to this point. We're going to see miracles in detail we have not seen up to this point. Everything that Jesus does, everything that he says, all the events that occur are all there to take us up to that final moment here at the end of that first section, which guess what? Big surprise ends how? With a rejection. It ends with a rejection. And I want you to think about the crucifixion in a way that perhaps you haven't thought about it before. Maybe you have, I don't know. I want you to think specifically with me as the, as the religious leaders, as the people are getting ready to reject Jesus, as they're planning, as they're conniving, as they're scheming to reject him here at the end of this section again, just like they did in section one, just like they did in section two, here at the end of section three, they're doing it again. As they get ready to do this, they want him to die. But how? How can we get rid of this guy forever? We accused him of being possessed by Satan. That didn't work. His family tried to help and say he was crazy. That didn't work. His townspeople tried to write him off. That didn't work. What can we, oh, we got to kill him. Okay, how can, we, how can we get him to die? Oh, I got two great ideas. They bring two charges against Jesus. And I want you to think about those with me in light of what we've seen so far here in Mark. The first one comes in Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 64. We're going to kind of cheat and look at the end here. But in Mark chapter 14, verse 53, Mark writes, and they led Jesus to the high priest. This is after he's been arrested in the garden. They led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst of midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And so finally, finally now the priest comes in with the question, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Finish it for me. The son of the blessed? Are you the son of God? This is the whole point Mark is trying to make in section one. The priest wants to know, are you really that? And of course, Jesus answers him, I am. <laughs> he likes a, Jesus knows how to turn a phrase. I am, referencing God's name. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. They get Mark's first point. Mark is trying to present Jesus as Son of God. They understand that that's what Jesus is presenting about himself, so they ask him plainly, and Jesus answers honestly, ah, you deserve death. This isn't the only charge. Now, the second charge will be found the next morning when they bring him to Pilate, because Pilate, 
you know, he's a Roman. He's a pagan. What is he going to care about Jesus for thinking he's the son of God? Because maybe Jesus is crazy. So they bring a second charge to Pilate, different than the one they condemn him for that night. And so in chapter 15, verse 1, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. I'd love to know what they were talking about. I'm assuming it's kind of the strategy to get this done with Pilate. So they bound Jesus and they led him away and they delivered him over to Pilate. And Mark does not record the words of the, of the priest to Pilate. All we have is Pilate's response to Jesus, but in that we can see what the charge was. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. It's Mark's second point. In fact, later in chapter 15, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, you will get to hear it from their lips specifically. Uh, verse 29, those who passed by him as he's hanging there derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. They got the point. They got both points. Jesus is Son of God. Jesus is King. They're going to take these very two points, the two points that Mark has been emphasizing up to this point, and use those as the accusations to get Jesus killed. And what's interesting to me is that in making the accusations, they don't, they don't deny the biblical or theological truths inherent in the accusation. In other words, they don't deny that the Christ will be the Son of God, because they know Isaiah 9. They know that Isaiah 9, in talking about this coming Messiah, calls him the mighty God, the eternal Father, they understand the truth that this coming Christ, that this coming Messiah will be God himself, okay? They don't deny that, nor do they deny that the coming Christ will be king because they know Genesis 49. They know Jacob's prophecy to Judah about his future, that the scepter would never depart from him. They know further how that promise was, was explained to David in 2 Samuel 7, that he would have an everlasting kingdom they knew that this Christ, the son of David, the son of Judah, would be an everlasting king. And so they don't deny that, that the Christ will be the son of God. They don't deny that he will be the king of Israel and the whole world as, as well. They affirm those things. What they are denying is that this man standing before them, Jesus of Nazareth, is any of that. Okay, I just want you to understand where this is going. They deny that he can be any of those things. And so we see this final rejection of Jesus here in Mark's gospel. They try him as a criminal. They succeed in getting the death penalty against him for blasphemy, crucify him on a Roman cross. And then we wait. And I'll just throw this out, a little extra tidbit for free. Um, I, I'm noticing, and I, I don't want to go so far as to say it's a, a regular component of Mark's writing Mark is seeming to like threes, okay? 
like groups of threes. So we, we've had three sections where he's presented Jesus in three different ways, Son of God, King, now Christ. Uh, in that final one, we've got three subsections and three very clear movements of Jesus in larger ministry on the way in Jerusalem. Three times in that second subsection, Jesus will turn and declare his coming death and resurrection. And now three days they wait and on the third day, when Jesus finally now rises from the grave, you see the confirmation that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is not like any other man. That he is, in fact, God's son. That he is truly the king of all. And now make the connection that I think Mark wants us to make. If he is God's son, unable to die, if he's king over all, including death, well, then guess what that means? He has to also be the Christ. He has to be the Christ. Mark's entire argument is going to hinge, I think, on this very point. Sometimes, I, as I was studying this and I was thinking about just presenting these basic ideas to you, I, I sometimes feel guilty because I feel like I end up saying the same thing a lot. I mean, how many different ways can I tell you that Jesus is the Christ, Right? I start to kind of feel guilty saying the same things, and yet I recognize in saying it that I don't need to apologize because as, even as believers, we can never be reminded enough of these truths, right? I mean, just never. Will, will there be a moment when those foundational truths of our faith, the foundational truths of the gospel, won't be necessary and important? And so I remind you today of the thing that was in my heart as we were singing over there. If Jesus was just the Son of God, and was just the king, we would fear him. Because as God, we sinned against him. As king, we rebelled against him. If he is nothing but the son of God and nothing but the king of all, he is a being most fearful to us. But the same God against whom we sinned and the same king against whom we rebelled then came to earth as a man to become the Christ who won our salvation. Just think about that for a moment. It's, it's not as if like in our thinking, in our hearts, we have to somehow conjole God to, to be kind to us. Don't you understand the same God against whom you have rebelled in every possible way came to win your salvation? Have mercy on me as we were singing that song. I was just thinking about that truth because of your steadfast love, the one we're singing to is the very one we sinned against and the very one who came in love and mercy and grace to make it all right. And so I have no apology for reminding you of that. And we're going to continue to be reminded of that throughout the rest of this gospel as we work step by step, walking with Jesus, seeing these truths that yes, he's the son of God. Yes, he's the king Yes, praise the Lord, he is the Christ. You bow your heads with me. God, I come to you now and I thank you. Jesus, I thank you that you are not just the Son of God and that you are not just the King you is the one we had sinned against. You is the one we've rebelled against. In great mercy, love, you came to this earth 
and died in our place for the sins we had committed against you. It wasn't simply that that you made some other sacrifice. You sacrificed yourself in order to forgive us for what we had done to you. God, may the, the wonder of that idea never leave our hearts and minds. This is the essence of the gospel that you were willing to sacrifice yourself for us. And as we see here in this final section, as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, all you have come and called us to is, the, is repentance and belief, to turn from our previous way of life and to place all of our hope and trust in this sacrifice that you have made for us. Father, if there is someone in here today who does not believe those things, who is not living their life in repentance, who continues to try to rebel, who continues to sin, who, has, who, is, who is unwilling to yield, to bend their knee to you. God, may these truths today prick their hearts in a way that they have never experienced. Will you right now, Lord, convict them and open the eyes of their hearts to see that you are willing to have mercy on them if only they will repent and believe. Lord, for all of us in here, though, who call you our Savior, may we hold fast to this belief in your deity. May we hold fast to this belief in your kingdom, your lordship. And may we hold fast to the glorious hope that we have that you are our Savior. That when you see us, you don't see us as sinners. You see us now in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's in that name and in that righteousness that we have gathered this morning to worship you, to learn from you, to sing to you. Father, may our hearts just rejoice in it. And so as we close out in song now, Father, I pray that the words we sing will be a genuine reflection of our hope in you and nothing more. We ask this in your name. Amen.